Father, Jesus, I am so thankful that for your deep, deep love for us. Thank you for your grace. And Lord, I thank you for all that you purchased for us at the cross. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of your freedom and your grace this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I've titled my teaching, Christ is All or Christ is Nothing. We're in Galatians 5, 1 through 12. And instead of reading the whole passage at the beginning, I'm just going to read it as we walk through kind of verse by verse and section by section. Now, last week, um, when we were wrapping up in chapter 4, Paul used an allegory. He used some contrasts for his argument to say that we are free in Christ. We are children of promise. And now, in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's kind of a bridge because Paul is looking back on all he said about us being free in Christ, and he's also looking forward. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Being free, this is an indicative. This is telling us who we are because of Christ. We are free. So, for freedom Christ has set us free. But there's a command here. That's an imperative. That is, we are to stand um, there's another statement of freedom that we see in verse 13. We're going to get to that next week, but I want to read that because this forms kind of a sandwich, as Pastor Jason would say, of freedom, a sandwich of freedom here. Okay, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So Paul is a straight shooter, right? He used some harsh language in this passage. And what he's trying to say is he's kind of screaming at them, right? Galatians, you are in danger of losing your freedom. You know, watch out. A direct warning was needed because the stakes were high then, and they are, the stakes are high today too. So Paul wrote this warning to Timothy. He said, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And when I hear that phrase, shipwreck of faith, this made me think of an old warning that I heard, and I wanted to play this for you this morning. Again, this is the USS Montana requesting that you immediately divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Over. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. This is Captain Hancock. You will divert your course. Over. Negative, Captain. I'm not moving anything. Change your course. Over. So, this is the USS Montana, the second largest vessel in the North Atlantic Fleet. You will change course 15 degrees north, where I will be forced to take measures to ensure the safety of this ship. Over. This is the lighthouse, mate. It's your call. Okay, well, in all seriousness, right, Paul is giving a warning. And, you know, there are consequences when we don't heed a warning. And I think of another instance, and that is the Titanic. Do you remember they received repeated warnings that there were icebergs in the area? 
and other ships had reported this, but they didn't heed the warning, believing that, well, ice can't cause serious damage. In fact, the captain had previously said that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Well, we know the result, disastrous of that. Well, in today's passage, verses 1 through 12, the choice is clear. Circumcision or Christ. There's no combo platter, no in-between option. You can't have it both ways. Paul's words are like the lighthouse, solemnly warning the Galatians, don't make shipwreck of your faith. Danger. Resist. Don't turn back to the law. Christ has set us free. A yoke of slavery is a yoke of guilt and condemnation. So my question is, do we understand the danger and what is at stake today? And so my aim is that we would see the clear choice that Christ is all or Christ is nothing. We can't add to Jesus' work on the cross. This passage starts with circumcision in verses 2 through 6, and it also ends with circumcision in verses 11 and 12. But there's great gospel truth in the center of this sandwich. Christ alone is all, or Christ is nothing. If we add circumcision, which Paul says counts for nothing, as a requirement for salvation, then you're, what you're saying is that Jesus isn't enough. Christ becomes nothing to you. And so we can do the math. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything, including freedom, our inheritance, the promise, blessing. Calvin put it this way, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. Our key to freedom is Christ, the grace of God in Christ. And so my first point this morning is, how is Christ nothing? Well, Christ is nothing, Paul says, if you accept circumcision. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So when he says, look, he says, I'm a genuine apostle. Do you remember how chapters 1 and 2 were Paul's defense of his authentic apostleship? He says, I'm your friend. He said before in previous passages, I'm a father. You know, you're my children. Dear children, don't stray. Then he says that, that if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be nothing to you, of no advantage. Christ will be nothing if you think that circumcision is what makes you right with God. So in verse 3, he says, I testify again. And so it makes you wonder, when did Paul say this previously? Well, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 10, we read, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, right? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And so then Paul goes on here, he says, To every man who accepts circumcision as a way to be justified by the law, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. And we've learned we can't keep the whole law, right? It's impossible. So Paul goes on to make it even more plain. He said in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. If we try to be right with God by way of the law, then we are severed. We are cut off from Christ, and we're submitting to a yoke of slavery again. And Paul's using a word play here in this section. You notice he uses the word circumcision a lot. 
He also uses the words cut off or severed. And if they opt for circumcision and the law to save them, which involves cutting, then they are being cut off from Christ. So we see this through this whole passage. The other play on words that Paul uses here is in the command, he says, stand firm. Okay, that's our command, stand. And if you don't, what is the opposite of standing firm? You're falling over, right? You're fallen. So if we're not standing in the freedom that Christ bought for us at the cross, we're cut off from Jesus and we're fallen from grace. Then Christ is nothing. He's of no advantage. There's no benefit that we have from grace. Freedom can only be enjoyed as we depend on the grace of Christ. Falling away means no grace, no freedom, but slavery instead. So the next question that might come up is, what about those we know who seem to have believed? Perhaps you have family or friends who have left the faith they once professed. And we're brokenhearted over this, are we not? We've also seen some high-profile pastors who have renounced their faith recently. And we even, there's even a new term for this. They're calling it deconversion. Have you heard that word? Deconversion, yeah. Well, in 1 John, <clears throat> we read this. They went out from us, but they are not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. A person might be a member of Bethlehem. Pastor Jason said in his sermon this week, he said their passport was stamped, right? They might have been baptized, received communion, attending or even leading worship, living an upstanding moral life. But if they're not of us, if they're not truly trusting in Christ, then they're not truly justified. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. These kind of people, you know, Paul describes as not of us. They prove by their going out that they were not truly saved. And the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Holding fast our confidence or persevering to the end is the ongoing proof that we've shared in Christ, that we've trusted in Christ alone for salvation. If, if we don't, then it shows that we were never truly saved. Now, we're, we come to verses 5 and 6, but I'm going to skip over those right now. But for now, we're going to jump down to verse 7 and go through verses 7 through 12, where Paul continues in his warnings about those who are causing the Galatians so much confusion. So how does Paul describe these folks? What is their fate? Well, Paul says that they hindered you from running well. And you might ask yourself, what hindrances threaten to take you off track today? The word translated hindered here means to cut off, to impede one's course by cutting off his way. Who has cut in on you is what he's saying. We could paraphrase this section like this. Who has cut in on you for the purpose of persuading you not to follow the truth? Such persuasion is not from God. I myself, however, am persuaded about you, right? He has a confidence that he has in the Lord. And I thought about an application here and I, that in the uh, 1984 Olympics, Mary Decker was running and the runner that she was right next to cut in on her and Mary fell over. What happened, let me tell you what happened. She didn't finish the race because uh, the competitor that she was running against cut in ahead of her. They were running so closely together that their feet got kind of tangled up in each other. And, and Zola Budd was, the, was the, um, the British gal who was running ahead. She was actually running barefoot. She continued on in the race, got seventh place, but Mary Decker was knocked out completely. She never finished the race. 
and it was a gold medal race. It was the final. So I thought that was a good example, an illustration of what can happen to us as we are running this race. Paul uses this imagery in other passages of Scripture. In Hebrews, we're challenged, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Paul says, these people who are cutting in on you are not of God. They're not from God who calls you. Um, God had called them, and God would never seek to hinder you or cut you off from the truth of the gospel. So Paul is saying, where did you get this idea, and what are you going to do about it? And he, he throws in this kind of this... Um, a proverb about leaven. He says, you know, a little leaven, you know, ruins the whole lump here. And so in this context, leaven is the legalism of the gospel that has crept into the church in Galatia. You can't add just a little bit of legalism and then expect that grace is going to flourish. Legalism is invasive and it spreads, it takes over, it, it traps you. And so he's, like he said, Last week when he said cast out, you remember he used that language of, of casting out the slave woman and Jackie told us that is cast out that false gospel. You know, don't allow the, those, the false gospel or legalism to take hold in the church. Um, the false teachers we see will also face penalties. Paul says, I hope that you'll come around. Don't fall for this lie. Don't take another view. And he throws in a word of hope here. He says, he's persuaded that the false teachers will not ultimately win the Galatians over to their view. And his confidence is based in what? The Lord. His confidence is in the Lord. He says, the one who is troubling you, the false teachers, will face penalties in verse 10. In verse 11, he talks about persecution, that they're being persecuted. We saw this theme also back in chapter 4, verse 29, where we read, but just as that, as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. There was deep persecution that Christians were facing at this time. Paul says, if I were still preaching circumcision, then the offense of the cross would be taken away. But by preaching salvation is by Jesus alone, they're facing persecution, okay? Salvation, including circumcision, would make it easier on these believers. But Paul says there can be no compromise. You can either save yourself through circumcision and law-keeping or by salvation through the offense of the cross. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. And the offense here is, is really the offense of our pride, I think. We think it's foolishness that we have to rely completely on God for our salvation, you know, surely there must be something we contribute that's good, right? That's what we, th that's, I think that's my, how my heart goes. Um, Paul says, they unsettle you, and Paul wishes that they would emasculate themselves. Now, I wasn't going to spend any time on this, but when, <laughs> but when I met with the discussion group last night, that was one of the questions they had, and so I thought, well, maybe I should spend a couple minutes here. Since these Judaizers think that, that circumcision is crucial to their salvation, Paul is saying they might as well cut it all off. He makes this kind of graphic, sarcastic irony, saying, well, if you think a little bit of cutting will help, maybe do more, and you'll, you'll be even better, you know, in better standing with God. And so in some ways, it's kind of ironic, but <clears throat> other commentators have called this the crudest and rudest of all Paul's statements. 
But I think one caution that we have here is that I think we have to be careful to remember that Paul was not literally wishing physical harm, bodily harm on these um, Judaizers because he said in Ephesians 6, he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And one thought is that Paul was making a reference here to the pagan cult that was in that area or near that area of Galatians where in the spring festival, the priests would kind of work themselves into a frenzy and they would castrate themselves and they would drink their own blood as an offering to these pagan gods. And so with this reference, some of these in the audience who had been pagan, you know, in the past might have remembered, oh, you know, that's, that's not good. So Paul might have been insinuating that the false teachers were no better spiritual guides to them than these pagan priests were. Okay, another thought is that Paul might have been referring back to the book of Deuteronomy, which stated that if a man was emasculated through cutting or crushing, that he could not enter the assembly of the Lord. So that those that were teaching circumcision as a way of salvation should be castrated and therefore excluded from the assembly or the church as another way of stating Paul's you know, opening curse. You remember in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, where Paul you know, said, let them be cursed you know, if they're preaching a different gospel. So this is kind of, a, a kind of pointing backwards to the Old Testament of that curse. So those are just some ideas from the commentators. So. But the point of verses 2 through 4 and 7 through 12 is clear that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Nothing. Then Christ is nothing. And if you think circumcision is what makes you right with God, Jesus is nothing then. So note the pronouns in verses 2 through 6 and 7 through 12. Paul repeatedly says, you. You see that? Look in your passage. You, 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 all over the place, right? Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit... By faith, we, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul here is inviting the Galatians to join him in affirming the beautiful truth of the gospel here, that Christ is all. It's only about faith here. That's the center truth of this passage. He says, through the Spirit. Now, we've already seen this in chapter 3 when Paul emphasized the experience of the Galatians. Of his, they experience his presence with them. And we're going to see next week in verses 16, 18, 22, on and on, Paul is going to zero in on the work of the Spirit in our lives, how we live out our faith in the Spirit's power. So I'm not going to talk as much about that today. We're going to talk more about the Spirit next week. Paul goes on to say that for through the Spirit, by faith, and we're going to talk about this in a minute because Paul mentions faith again later in this verse. Look at, he says next, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait. Remember last week we looked at what the heavenly Jerusalem was like and how we're waiting for that. What will that be like? This is the hope of righteousness. Paul is saying here that we eagerly wait knowing we are certain that it is on its way. We're hoping for what we already have. Okay, we are justified now. That is our legal status before God because of Jesus. We have the righteousness of Christ that is covering us. So we have his righteousness. But are we perfect yet? 
No. Do we still struggle every day? Yes, we have to fight against sin. There's a fight, an ongoing fight for faith, right? This is the already and the not yet of the Christian life. So we've learned that we are adopted as sons. We are heirs, and our future glorification is a sure thing because of Jesus. So it's through the Spirit and his work in our life, by faith, we have this posture of eagerness and passionate joy and delight in Jesus and all that he has given to us. He is our all. He is our righteousness. He is our hope of righteousness, too. We have this because we are in Christ, Paul says, for in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So in Christ, we here we see this beautiful truth of our union with Jesus. And oh, that we would grasp the wonder of our union with Christ. He says here that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. For anything. But do we find ourselves relying on our performance, religious performance? And I thought about the prodigal son, the story that Jesus told. And remember the older brother? He was relying on his, his performance. He had done all of his duty. And yet, we, we learn that, you know, that, that's not what we can rely on. That's not, where does this subtle lie come from? You know, that we tell ourselves that when we fail, that God doesn't love us as much as when we succeed, right? The flip side of that, when we succeed, is God, does, does he love us more? Paul was warning, uh, warning them here not only to reject the idea of circumcision, but also to reject pride in uncircumcision. He says circumcision or uncircumcision, neither one of them count for anything. The truth is our being right with God doesn't depend on our performance. We need to cling to Jesus, cling to his work on the cross for us. It's only by faith, only faith, only trusting Jesus counts only receiving his grace freely as a gift, not something that we earn. As we'll see next week, faith working through love is a fruit of the Spirit's work in us. We've seen this precious thread of faith before, haven't we? I hope some of you took the time this week to fill out that chart, seeing where in Galatians we see that word faith and what we've learned from it. Certainly, I go back to Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? It's only faith working through love. And next week, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. We're going to see what freedom in Christ looks like, what characterizes our freedom. Because Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And he goes on to say, keep in step with the Spirit. So we'll see that more next week. So in Christ, our union with Christ is at the center. So as we conclude, I just want to ask, are you trusting in Jesus? Christ is all or Christ is nothing? 
Faith or salvation is one way or it's no way. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's not like that fast food jingle from years ago, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, <laughs> special orders don't, won't upset us. You know, you can have it your way. Salvation isn't that way. You know, there is one way. You know, we, we can't special order it. Adding anything to Jesus cancels Jesus. No special orders. Now, you've heard the acronym GRACE, God's Riches at Christ's Expense, which describes the gracious work of Jesus for us at the cross. John Piper has another way to remind us what grace is, stands for as well, and that is God's rescuing and caring exertion. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And in Romans 5, Paul said, As sin reigned in death, grace also will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If we reject grace, we reject salvation. We reject his free gift. We reject his rescue. We reject his power, his freedom. We are only free by being in Christ right, by faith. And we grappled with the question this week in your lesson, do these verses mean that genuine Christians can lose their salvation? No. In this context, Paul is not dealing with the security of the believer. He's speaking about a person trying to be right with God by keeping the law. If you do that, then you're rejecting God's grace. You're rejecting Christ. The Bible teaches that true believers, the elect, will persevere to the end because God will hold us fast. Holding our confidence or persevering to the end is the ongoing proof that we have shared in Christ or have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And if we don't, then it shows that we never were truly saved. I go back to the lyrics, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me, so he will hold me fast. And this is a precious truth that I didn't understand until about 20 years ago. So I wanted to take a few minutes to just unpack this a little bit more and encourage you Romans 11.29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In John 8, Jesus said to his disciples, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This doesn't mean that we don't struggle. This doesn't mean that we don't need to fight for faith. But God also uses warnings for us in the Bible to keep us faithful. Warnings like, Don't drift. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep watch. Or like First Timothy, you know, don't make shipwreck of your faith, right? We have wonderful promises in the word to assure us, and I want to read a few. Jeremiah 32, 40 says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God will work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we will not ultimately turn away from him. Paul declared to the Corinthians that Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And he wrote to the Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before him, before the presence of his glory and with great joy. 1 Thessalonians 5, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. If God has called you, it's his faithfulness that will sustain you and keep you and hold you fast. One more promise, and that is Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And we note that Paul doesn't say some of those he justified will be glorified. He said those whom he justified, he also glorified. So ladies, if we are justified by grace through faith in Christ, we will be glorified. This is rock solid because God is faithful and he will hold us fast. Our justification is not based on our efforts. It's not on circumcision or uncircumcision. And we don't keep ourselves saved by our own efforts. We began by the Spirit. We continue by the Spirit, not by the flesh. True believers continue to trust in Jesus by grace. So we go back to Paul's warnings in these verses. You might say or think that you're a Christian, but if you're trusting in any way in your own performance, any of your own effort to be good enough, then you're rejecting God's grace. So don't reject God's grace. Don't reject that great salvation, that freedom. There's no advantage to that. Remember the command? He says, look. Look at this. Remember this. So what are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Are you eagerly waiting for your hope of righteousness in Christ? This is the already, the not yet. This is where we come to Christ with our broken-hearted boldness, as Pastor John said. Trust in Christ alone for salvation, regardless of our moral failures or our moral successes. Is Christ all to you, or is he nothing? We can't add anything to Christ without subtracting Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our brother Paul, who warns us with very clear language and has given us a clear choice here. I pray that if there's anyone in this room for whom it's not clear that they are trusting in Christ alone for salvation, Jesus, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would open eyes and open hearts, and that we would trust in you, we would trust in you completely for our salvation, and not in anything we do. So Lord, thank you for your word, thank you for the power of your word, thank you that it's living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. So would your word continue to have its effect in our lives, transforming us through the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.